Wasn't it great to have Kenny and Cindy with us last week, Pastor Kenny and Cindy? Uh, Just getting to know them has been a joy. They are fantastic. Uh, But last week when Kenny was here, we did take a break from our sermon series called Pictures of the Church while he spoke. And today, we're coming back to that sermon series. Uh, And Pictures of the Church is a sermon series that is about metaphors, similes, word pictures used in the New Testament to describe the church so that we can understand more about who God has made us to be. We use metaphors and similes all the time in our everyday conversations, don't we? In order to describe something, right? I don't, I don't have a metaphor or simile about the rain that just started. Can you all hear that or is that only me? Right? Is it just on this roof? Oh, it's so pleasant. It just puts me right to sleep. Maybe you too. We'll see. If I tell you, I think Pastor Kenny is a round peg in a round hole. What does that mean? Does that mean he's actually a cylinder? Does it mean he's actually a dowel? No, right? Because our metaphors and similes, they're not literal. What am I saying? When I say he's a round peg in a round hole, I'm saying he's a good fit. If you're talking to me about Pastor Kenny's sermon from last week and you say, hey, when Kenny was preaching, he was on fire. Right? You don't literally mean he was on fire, do you? Or that he is combustible and might ignite at any point. Instead, what are you saying? You are saying that his sermon was great. And we use these metaphors and similes to communicate greater depth about something. And the New Testament is filled with these that help communicate greater depth about the church and who God made us to be. And the passage that we're going to look at today is filled with these word pictures All kinds of different word pictures woven together into a beautiful tapestry. And so I'd like to encourage us to look at 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 4 through 12 this morning. And as I read these verses and you read along with me, 1 Peter 2, 4 through 12, just keep track of the different word pictures that are used in this passage. Beginning in verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, But in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Now, this passage that we just read is packed with truth, and it's packed with all kinds of different word pictures, but I want to focus in on three this morning, two that are about the church and one that is about Jesus. And I want to start with the picture in the passage about Jesus, because the passage says that Jesus is the cornerstone. Verse 4 starts by telling us he's a living stone, and then in verse 6 we find out not just any stone, he's the cornerstone. For it stands in Scripture. Where does it stand in Scripture? Your Bible may have a note here to tell you that this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. So 700 years before Jesus, this prophecy is made. And it says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him. Now pause there for a second. Shouldn't a cornerstone be an it? Well, sure it should if it was just a cornerstone. But this is a prophecy about the Savior, a man. And here the cornerstone is a him. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. What is a cornerstone? 2,000 years ago, the cornerstone was the first stone laid in the foundation of any building or house. And every other stone that was laid would come off of that cornerstone. And so you wanted to pick a cornerstone that was perfectly straight, that had perfect 90-degree angles, because every other stone was going to be aligned from that cornerstone. And in that sense, every stone in the building was going to be built upon the cornerstone. What would happen if you picked a cornerstone like mine that doesn't have even edges, or that was broken or warped? your building was in a lot of trouble. And so people wanted the very best cornerstone because everything else was built upon that cornerstone. And the New Testament teaches us that Jesus is our absolutely perfect cornerstone, that there are a group of people who build their lives upon that cornerstone, and those people will never be put to shame. But there is another group of people mentioned in this passage, who do not build their lives upon Jesus as the cornerstone. And they're talked about in verses 7 and 8, and they are brought to shame. Uh, Verses 7 and 8 say this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. For those who don't believe in Jesus, he becomes a rock of offense. What Jesus says is offensive to those who don't believe in him. When Jesus says, I am the only way into a relationship with God, that is offensive in our pluralistic society that says, whatever way you choose to get to God, go ahead. When Jesus says, every person is a sinner who is in need of salvation, that's offensive in a culture that says, A, I'm not even sure if there is such a thing as sin. Those are just choices people are making. And B, don't be calling me a sinner. I'm a pretty good person. Jesus is offensive when he spends 13% of his teaching time talking about eternal punishment for sin. Jesus is offensive to our modern culture when he says the purpose of life is to be obedient to the Father. And people in our day and age say, wait a minute, my life is my own. Don't tell me that I belong to anyone else or owe anybody else anything. Jesus is offensive to those who do not believe in him. 
And for them, he becomes a stumbling stone. People stumble or trip over him who don't believe in him, who don't build their lives upon him as their cornerstone. Now, when we think of stumbling or tripping, we often think of something that's accidental and something that's funny. Anyone in here ever watched America's Funniest Home Videos? Right? Then at some point you have laughed at someone who is tripping or stumbling, haven't you? Mean people. Well, let me uh, get mean here myself and tell a story about my wife. When she was a freshman in high school, still kind of getting used to high school life, it was her first year with all of these kids trying to fit in, she went out for the track team. And one day at track practice, they did this workout where you hook two people to a bungee cord. And the person in front runs with the bungee cord while the person in back provides resistance to them as they're trying to run. So Erica was the one in back trying to provide the resistance on the bungee cord while a bigger, stronger girl was in front running. And this girl was running and running and Erica was trying to provide resistance and she stumbled and she tripped. But the girl in front didn't know Erica had stumbled and tripped. She's just running for all she's got. She just figured Erica upped the resistance. And so she kept going, pulling Erica across the infield of the track, bouncing on her face all the way across. While the whole boys track team sat there stretching out, watching her bounce across the interior of the track on her face. That's a a formative experience, isn't it? Don't you wish that we had video of this that I could show you? Listen, did you hear that? Oh, you're mean. What kind of a husband? When we think of stumbling, we often think of something that's accidental And something that's funny. And I bring that up because that is not the case in this passage. The the stumbling and falling that is described in this passage is not accidental. And it's not funny. This is about a group of people who have intentionally not built their lives on Jesus as their cornerstone. They have rejected him as the cornerstone of their life. And because of that, they have tripped and they have fallen into sin and into punishment. Now, there is another group of people who are described in this passage, and that's those who do build their life on Jesus as the cornerstone. That's the church. That's God's people. That's God's family. Those who do build their life on Jesus as the cornerstone. As a matter of fact, if we want the greatest evidence that someone has a genuine faith in Jesus and is a part of God's family... We aren't best off looking to see if there's some experience that we can point to in the past or some ritual or symbol that we have been through. The best evidence that points to whether or not we have a genuine faith and have placed our trust in Jesus Christ is whether or not we're building our lives on him as the cornerstone. Whether every part of our life is being built upon Jesus Christ. And those who are building their life upon Jesus Christ, that's God's church. That's God's family. And they are being built into a spiritual house, this passage says. Verse 5 says, those who build their life on Jesus as their cornerstone, they become living stones 
who, who are being built into community together as a part of a spiritual house. Verse 5 says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. How many of you feel like a living stone today? I don't know what that would feel like. But the point of the simile here isn't just that we are living stones, it's that we're living stones that are being built together into a spiritual house. We're living stones who are interconnected, who who are resting upon each other and supporting each other as this house gets built. What good is one brick or one stone in building a house? If one stone, one brick sits out in the middle of the yard, what good is that to me in terms of living in a house? I I can't get inside it. I I can't really get under it. I, I could use it to dig a hole I could live in, but that's not really an efficient use of this brick. What good is a single stone? It's of no use. And the same is true in the metaphor. God hasn't designed us to be single, solitary stones. God has designed us to be living stones built into a spiritual house in which we rest upon each other, in which we support each other, encourage each other. It was never God's design that we would think of church primarily as a one-hour experience that we have on Sunday morning. Never do we see that anywhere in here. It is absolutely God's design that we would think of church as being a family, interconnected throughout the week, a body, using our gifts together, and a spiritual house, building our lives upon each other, practicing those one another's that we hear about in the New Testament over and over again. Dozens of one another passages, care for one another, love one another, pray for one another, encourage one another. And that we would be doing that day in and day out as the family of God. What is the first word picture that we see in this passage? That we're living stones being built into a spiritual house. Where we rest upon each other. Where we support each other. And support those around us. As we're built into this spiritual house in community. But that isn't the only picture that we see in this passage. Because verse 5 goes on. Yeah, at first it says, we're living stones being built into a spiritual house. But it goes on to declare you to be a priest. That's right. Did you know that? You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. You have been called by God to be a part of a holy priesthood. Just as the Old Testament priests were set apart. So you have been set apart for holy, righteous, and loving living. That's what the church is. It is a group of people who've been saved by Jesus Christ so that they can become like him in character and are striving towards that together. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, a famous evangelist named Todd White preached a message in which he said, for the last 16 years, I have been teaching an incomplete and incorrect gospel. He has preached to hundreds of thousands of people around the world. He has hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. 
And two weeks ago, he came out and said, for the last 16 years, I have been preaching a gospel that does not align with the gospel taught in the scripture. He went on to say, I repent of that false teaching. I repent of teaching an incomplete gospel for 16 years. And he said, the blood of those I have preached to is upon my hands. He says, I've been a false teacher because I have been teaching people that ultimately they should come to Jesus so that their circumstances all work out and they get the miracles that they have coming to them. But that is not the gospel that the Bible teaches us. Instead, he said this, the gospel is not that you should come to Jesus so you can get better circumstances and a smooth life. The gospel is that God sent his son to die in your place so that even though you are full of sin and deserve the wrath of God to be poured out on you, because of Jesus taking your punishment, you are declared not guilty. Amen, that is the gospel, isn't it? He says, your goal as a Christian is to be conformed to his image, to be transformed into his image, into his likeness. Now, is, is Todd White's repentance real? I have no idea. Please let me be clear about that. Absolutely no idea. A, a great sign would be if he stepped out of teaching for a couple of years. If you have been teaching the wrong gospel for 16 years, probably time to step out of the public light and get a little mentoring before you get back into the pulpit. That would be a great sign of genuine repentance. I have no idea if his repentance is real, and that's not the point. The point is that at least in this sermon, at least in this one sermon, he has clearly taught what the gospel of Jesus Christ is. That it is that God has come in our place to take our sin and our punishment so that we might become like Jesus Christ. We might have his character. We might have the fruit that his spirit produces. That we might be a holy priesthood who are righteous and loving in what we do. Verses 11 and 12 talk about why this is so important. It's because we are priests who are called to be holy because, as we will see in just a second, we we represent Jesus. Verse 11 and 12, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. He says, because you're a holy priesthood, because your real citizenship isn't here on earth, your real citizenship, your your primary citizenship isn't as an American, your primary citizenship is in heaven. Because that is true, verse 11, stay away from what is sinful. Verse 12, stay towards everything that is good. Verse 11, stay away from what is sinful. Verse 12, fill your lives with what is good, what is loving, what is righteous, what is holy. And that is so important because we recognize that as priests, we're called to represent God well with our lives. The Old Testament priests represented God to the people. And in that same sense, God has called us to be a priesthood who represent him well to those that we come in contact with. If we represent someone, how we act, the things that we do, reflect on that person that we represent. If the UPS driver came to my house tomorrow 
And he took his UPS truck and he backed it up into my driveway. And then he gunned it and went right through my garage door, right? Knocking my garage door down on top of my car. And then he got out of his UPS truck and took the package and just threw it right through the front window, shattering the glass all over the office. Would that impact how I think of UPS? Yeah, it would. Yeah, it would because he's wearing their uniform, right? He represents UPS. And in the same sense, follower of Jesus, you're wearing Jesus' uniform, right? You represent him. And Matthew chapter 5, verse 16 says, Our lives are to be so thoroughly filled with good works that people see them and they give glory to God who is in heaven. We represent him and we are called as priests to represent him well. A couple of weeks ago, I went on Facebook because I was looking for some information from a particular church. And I went on their Facebook page, and as I was looking at their Facebook page, I saw an announcement they had made, and there were dozens of comments about the announcement that they had made. And so I made the mistake of clicking on the comment section, right? We probably shouldn't click on any comment section ever. But I made the mistake of clicking on the comment section under the post this church had made on its Facebook page. And it was filled with so much grumbling, so much complaining. And then there were another group of people who came in to yell and scream at the first group of people and fight with them. And the first group of people fought back. And pretty soon the discussion uh, discussion section of this post was just filled with fighting and disunity and grumbling and complaining. And as followers of Jesus, what does that do? Breaks our heart, doesn't it? When we see that, because what do we care about most? We care about Jesus' name and reputation above everything. And when we see people fighting and grumbling and complaining and mistreating each other on a church's Facebook page, it's heartbreaking to us. On the other side of that, I was talking to a guy a few weeks ago who's a part of Friendship, and he was saying that several years ago, he and his family went through an extremely difficult time. And during that difficult time, the people of this church came in and loved he and his family so very well. They had financial needs, and the people of this church met those financial needs. They had all kinds of things they couldn't get done around their house. And people from this church came in groups in order to make sure the things that needed to get done around their house got done. And he said, as his family, who were primarily non-believers... Watch the actions of the people of this church. Suddenly their attitudes towards Jesus and hearing about church changed and they became open to conversations about Jesus where they had been totally closed before because they saw the church loving its fellow members well, acting in righteousness and love and purity and holiness. We are priests called to represent God well with our lives. Passage goes on to say not only that, but verse 5 says, We are priests who are called to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We're priests who are called to offer our lives in sacrifice to God. We don't sacrifice animals today, do we? Right? Do, do we? At least, um, I mean, I guess, I guess we 
sacrifice them in a sense, and then we eat those delicious burgers and steaks. But we don't sacrifice them as a part of our worship to God as they did in the Old Testament. Instead, what does the New Testament call us to? To sacrifice ourselves. Everything about us, everything we have and everything we are, is to be given to God as a living sacrifice. Jesus says, I want every part of your life. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies, your whole self, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In the Old Testament, if I had sheep and one lamb was better than all of the others, I had a decision to make, didn't I? Was I going to keep that lamb for myself? knowing that it was going to probably fetch the greatest price? Or was I going to give that lamb to God as sacrifice? What was it going to be? I had this best lamb. Was I going to choose God or was I going to choose myself? And ultimately, in choosing to give the best to God, what was I doing? I was expressing love for him because that's what love's about. Choosing for someone else instead of for self. If my wife and I decide that we want to go out to lunch after the service today, and I really want to go to Dairy Queen, and my wife does not want to go to Dairy Queen. My wife really wants to go to Z's Diner, but I do not want to go to Z's Diner. What are we going to do? No, no, really, help me. I need counseling. What are we going to do? Well, there's some options. We could go to different restaurants and eat lunch. She can go to Z's, I can go to Dairy Queen. That sounds romantic. What are our other options? Well, we could try and come up with a third restaurant to compromise. Let's just go to Fong's and call it good. I got amen out of Fong's. Absolutely delicious. But it is possible that as a husband, the most loving thing I could do is say, I know you really want to go to Z's. And Go. I don't want to go, but who cares, right? Love is about her, not me. And in that same sense, we're faced with decisions in our life all the time where God says, I want this for you. And our flesh says, but I want this. And the ultimate act of worship in our life is when we choose what God wants in that situation rather than what the flesh wants. We have a tendency to think of worship as being about singing or about praying, and it is those things. It can be those things. But the greatest worship that can take place in our life is when we face a decision between what God wants and calls us to and what our flesh wants, and we choose God and what he wants for our life. That's the greatest act of worship. We're priests who are called to sacrifice our lives to God. What does that look like for you this week? And then finally, in this, in this metaphor about us being priests, we recognize that we're priests who are chosen to brag about God. That's right, we, we're priests who are chosen to brag about our God. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I went to open gym at my high school. And there were basketball players there from all different levels. There were varsity basketball players there. There were JV basketball players, sophomore basketball players, and even a few of us freshmen showed up and dared to try and be a part of open gym. 
And as we were picking teams to see who was going to play on what team, the senior captain of the high school basketball team selected me to be on his team. Oh, right. It was awesome. Right? I, I didn't even know he knew my name, but he picked me to be on his team. Right now, you, you'll notice I'm, I'm not telling you where in the order of selection he picked me because <laughs> it might have been kind of late, but that's not the point. Right? The point is that this person that I thought was really cool picked me and it made me feel great. But, but we can all agree that's unbelievably lame compared to the fact that the God of the universe has chosen you to be a part of his team. The God of the universe has selected you to be a part of his family. Look at verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you'd not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter here stacks a lot of different images from the Old Testament. From priesthood to Israel as a chosen race, right, to a chosen people. And he says to those Jews and Gentiles that he's writing to, this is you now. You are God's chosen people. He has selected you to be a part of his team. And he's chosen you for a very specific purpose. To brag about how great he is. He's chosen you that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. God has chosen you so that you will brag about him everywhere you go. Which is natural for us. When we experience generosity and goodness, we tend to brag about it. Years ago, I knew a campus minister named Dave. And Dave loved doing campus ministry, but he was going to have to pull out of being a campus minister because he could not get the necessary funds raised to continue on in his campus ministry. And just as he was about to leave campus ministry, a guy from his church took him out to lunch. And he said, Dave, I've been watching you. And I appreciate you, and I appreciate your ministry. And I want to come on your financial team. And I want to come on to your financial team for $3,000 per month. What? $3,000 per month. And in a single lunch, Dave went from 50% supported to 100% supported. And that guy, by the time I met Dave, had been supporting him for years at $3,000 a month. This is where I'm getting old enough, I have to make a comment like, and that was when $3,000 was a lot of money or something like that, right? I met Dave four different times in my life. And all four of those times, I heard about his generous benefactor. A couple of times he was talking to me directly about it. A couple of times I overheard him talking to other people about it. But he'd experienced such generosity from someone that he couldn't help but talk about it with everybody that he came in contact with. The generosity and grace that we have experienced from our God 
is light years beyond what Dave experienced from that financial donor. We have been called out of darkness into light. We've been saved by Jesus. Because I deserve it? No, because of his great mercy. Once I didn't have that mercy, but now I do have that mercy because of his generosity and his goodness in our lives. And now as his followers, we can't help but be that priesthood of believers that goes around bragging about our God and how good he is and how gracious he is to everybody we come in contact with, to our coworkers, to our friends, to our neighbors, to our family. We just brag about God and how gracious and how generous he has been in our lives because we are priests who are chosen to brag about God. Now, as we wrap up this sermon and combine these images that we've seen in this passage, that Christ is the cornerstone and that there are people, his church, who build their lives upon that cornerstone, who become living stones, who are built together into a spiritual house, who are a priesthood called to holiness and to brag about their God. The natural question is this. Have you built your life upon Jesus as the cornerstone? Have you built your life upon Jesus as the cornerstone so that you're a part of that spiritual house? Built your life upon Jesus as the cornerstone so that you're a part of that holy priesthood? Have you built your life upon Jesus as the cornerstone? Living a lifetime Building upon Jesus as the cornerstone starts with a particular day in which we say, Jesus, I want to build my life upon you. I'm tired of building my life upon myself. I'm tired of living in sin. I want to turn away from that. I want to repent and I want to live my life on you as the cornerstone. I want you to be my savior. I want you to be king of my life. Has that happened in your life? The life that God calls us to, a life of daily faith, starts on a particular day when we first trust in him and exercise that gift of faith that he has given to us. Is that that day? Is today that day? I'd invite you all to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And if today is the day in which you begin to build your life upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, in which you begin to live by faith in him, repenting of the direction that you have been headed, repenting of self and sin, and saying, Jesus, I I want you. Be my savior, be my king. Would you cry out to him now? And if today is that day, would you let us know? Maybe by using the card that's on the seats that you're seated in, or if you're online, by indicating in the chat. Today is the day when I begin to build my life upon the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Father, we are so thankful for your great gifts, for sending your son the cornerstone, We trust in him. We build our lives upon him. And we are so thankful for the call into this holy priesthood, into this group of believers 
who are being built together as a spiritual house, supporting each other, caring for each other, loving each other. And we pray that your spirit would empower us to continue that process this week. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.